what I want to do is talk a little bit about worry. And we've been doing a series on freedom, freedom from a whole bunch of stuff. And worry is something that just gets its talons and it snares into people and, and really just grips. Um, the Bible translates it in the version that you guys have been using as, as anxious or anxiety. And there's kind of two sides to that, I suppose. One is um, panic. And I mean, who, who's scared of spiders? Put your hand out, you're scared of spiders or, or, or heights. It's quite a long way up. It's not, not as bad as Gorgie here. Um, it, that, that, that's panic, you know. It's like when there's a spider in the room, you, you, you're panicking. And, but generally speaking, when you're out of the room of the spider, you feel okay. I mean, you might still think they just got too many legs, but, but you know, your, your emotions calm down at that point. Whereas what I want to talk about today is worry, which just goes on and churns and, and digs its claws into you and never really goes away. I'm going to just start off by, by putting up a picture of a lady here, a lady called Corrie Ten Boom. And she might look a bit old school, but actually she's pretty hardcore. And um, she's a Dutch Holocaust survivor. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. She used to hide people from, from the Nazis and help them escape. And she had lots and lots and lots of reasons to be worried. She, had, uh, she was in three different concentration camps. She, um, her father died in one. Her, her sister died in another one. She had lots and lots of reasons to be worried about the future. But, but she said this. She said, worry does not rob tomorrow of its sorrows, but it robs today of its joys. And I think that's why we want to talk about worry, such an important thing, because it, it actually doesn't do anything. It feels like work, but it, it doesn't, doesn't change tomorrow, whereas it does rob today of its joy. And there's so many different ways to manage worry that are wrong. I, I was hearing a story about a guy called Tom, who'd been a compulsive worrier for, for many years, until he found a way to overcome the problem. He hired someone and paid them £1,000 a week to do all his worrying for them. And his friend said, wow, this is great. You look so much more relaxed. This is fantastic. And how are you going to pay for him? Ah, don't worry about that. That's his problem. <laughs> and that, that's a very short-termist approach to worry, a very quick-fix kind of approach to worry. And what I want to do today is, is help you actually get a real answer to worry. And it, it's not a quick fix. It's a bit of a journey. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about giving ourselves a slap and I've got a picture here. Um, this is not me. Um, and I also have to tell you, it's not anyone from this church, nor were any animals harmed in the making of this commercial. But that's someone, I think it's probably a white American male from the internet, big slap of some kind. And joking apart, obviously, if you do have a problem with worry, you're probably actually very good at giving yourself a bit of a slap and a hard time. But we're not going to give ourselves a slap. We're going to give worry a slap. It can be S-L-A-P. And we're going to go through that today, and we're going to be teaching you how to spot worry for what it is and stand back from it. Also about labeling it. There's, there's two types of worry. It's really important to deal with which type of worry, because they've got different actions. The first type, you do actually need to act and do something about. The second type, any action in the world is not going to make a blind bit of difference. And what I'm going to suggest we do in learning from Jesus is, is to pray, because actions don't make any difference at all. Secular psychologist might suggest that you do a prayer of a sort, but I think actually praying to God is the answer to that particular thing. So let's have a read through the passage. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 6, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, the end of Matthew 6. And um, Peter's been taking you through this over the past few months, and we start off with, in chapter 5, what a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls the visible Christian life. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German theologian during World War II, and I happen to know that Peter's just driven to France and back and has been listening 
on his car cassette player to the autobiography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So you're going to get some chat over the next few weeks about Dietrich. And you might have had a quote or two already. But he says the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 is the visible life. Chapter 6 is the hidden Christian life. And chapter 7 is the visible Christian community or the church. Very broad brush, but it roughly falls into those. So in chapter 6, you've been looking at prayer. You were looking at prayer in the new year. And then last week, you were looking at freedom from your wallet, basically. And then this week, we're looking at how to find freedom in your mind. So Dietrich says um, this about it. And this is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious or or by worrying, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Or another translation, today has got enough worries of its own. It's particularly these verses here that I want to be focusing on as we go through. And worry is enough of a problem for Jesus to think about putting it in the Sermon on the Mount, but is it a problem today? And I'm just going to point out to your website, we're not going to have a look at it now, but this is quite a fun website on the next slide called We Feel Fine. And it's a great website, wefeelfine.org. And you go to it and click on it, a little thing opens, and it, it draws in all different emotion words. So angry, bad, fed up, etc., worried, worrying, all those kinds of different words. It draws in from the internet that have been on Twitter, on Facebook, on new websites that have gone been refreshed, and uh, blogs that have been published, all this kind of stuff. And you can sort of zone in. And if you zone in too much, you... You only get like one or two comments. But if, if you click on worrying and then maybe England or Scotland, you know, United Kingdom you can go down to, you can see all the things that people are worrying about. And there's lots and lots and lots. Several times each minute, each hour, someone is putting something on the internet about worrying. I'm worried about a relationship. I'm worried about my money. I'm worried about my children's relationship they're having with their toe rag boyfriend. I want to, uh, you know, there's lots of things to be worried about. And it's a real thing, and it's a great fun. You can also go and have a look on the internet for sort of happy and nice words like that. But wefeelfine.org, there is lots on there about worry. But Matthew 6, at first glance, doesn't look like an easy passage for people who really struggle with worry. Because if you're someone who deeply would love not to worry, to be hit with Matthew 6, verse 25, do not be anxious, you know, if only... If only you didn't worry, if only you were able to sort of turn it off. And I guess most people, that's why I was joking at the beginning and saying, most people have probably given themselves a good slap and said, come on, snap out of it. And I suppose one of the things I want to say today is if you could snap out of it by now, you would have done. 
So I don't want you to give yourself a hard time if you cannot turn off your worry, because it's not something that can just be turned off. It's self-perpetuating. It's something which there are techniques to manage, but it is still a journey. And when Jesus says this, sometimes Christians can get all excited about this. The, the authorised version translates it, give no thought. And it's almost as though sometimes in some churches, you know, you sort of leave your brains at the door with your coats and your hat, and you sort of come into church, and it's just like... Here we are. How did, did you have a nice week? Yes, and a very busy but nice. You know, and all these kind of sort of words are used at this, aren't they? And you know, you, you're not really allowed to have negative emotions. And you know, good. Oh, brilliant sermon! If anyone wants to come up to me afterwards and say brilliant sermon, that's fine. But I, I don't mind negative comments as well. You know, we've got to be able to tolerate something of, of, of negative emotions and challenging things in church. This is not a leave your brain at the door church. And it's also quite a challenging passage if you think about some of the famine-struck regions of the world, like in in Ethiopia or other parts of Africa. This sort of challenge to sort of, well, don't worry about what you're going to wear and don't worry about what you're going to eat. That's quite offensive, actually, isn't it? You know, if you are genuinely in a starving zone, to get that kind of teaching, you know, could be seen as very insensitive. And we need to remember the context here. Whenever you're studying the Bible, we have to sort of think, well, what was the context? And Jesus, Matthew 5, at the beginning it tells us, went up a hill and he began to teach his disciples and the crowds were around. And yes, although Israel was occupied by the Romans, it was a long-term occupation. It had been going on for, for many years, many decades. And it wasn't an extreme situation. Yes, there was poverty, but there wasn't widespread starvation. Many of them were out for the day to come and listen to Jesus and probably had a picnic with them. And what he was saying to them is, in that context... Don't worry about your next meal. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. He's not talking to people from Africa. And the other thing he's not talking to, he's not talking to sensitive, caring people who have a slight tendency to worry. Because actually worrying, and psychologists call it neuroticism, is a normal part, a normal healthy part of some personalities. Who's heard of Myers-Briggs as a sort of personality questionnaire? Myers-Briggs is, is quite famous in the church. Elijah goes, Mrs. Myers and Mrs. Briggs were, were Christians. And they come up with these four domains or dimensions that you can score your personality on. But there's a fifth. And the fifth is neuroticism. And it's not in Myers-Briggs. Because Myers-Briggs was designed for the business world, where things like, you know, being an extrovert or determinism and making clear choices were, were valued. But neuroticism is a really important, normal, healthy part of human personality. So this sermon is not for you. If you are just a caring person who actually for you, your, your worry, your slight tendency to overthink is actually a strength. What this sermon is for is about people who haven't dealt with it because actually the church doesn't value negative emotions. Um, are perhaps chasing after things for which they don't need to. And they kind of know they don't need to. People tend to have insight. I know that I shouldn't worry that much but they're just stuck in this cycle of worry. And it, it's also for people who, who actually are beyond the normal range of personality or actually have a, have a real significant problem with worry. And sometimes, of course, worry is necessary. Let's just put the next picture up. This is um, one of my favourite films here, Band of Brothers. And uh, has anyone seen this? Anyone watched that? It's absolutely amazing series of documents. I cried at the end of every single one. I'm a bit, I, you know, I cry at the PDSA advert, but I, 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 I definitely cried for this one, particularly when the, the original dudes were sort of just being completely hardcore at the end. It was absolutely amazing. But 
there are times when worry is appropriate. I, I don't know if anyone here has got a loved one or a friend or a family who's in the forces who's currently in Afghanistan. Has anyone got someone who's overseas? There's a few people. In those situations, it is completely normal to worry. And for me to turn around to you and say, don't worry, actually, again, is quite offensive. So what I'm not doing is I'm saying, don't worry about the things in life for which it is right and proper to worry. It's normal to worry a mother thinking of her son in Afghanistan, the baby, the parents of a premature baby that's just been born. Worry in those situations is normal. What we're talking about here is, is continual worry, perhaps when the original threat has gone. And what Jesus is saying, there's some verses to go up under that. What Jesus is saying is, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. And this, this word seek is translated sometimes seeking, chasing, fussing, the message calls it, dominating the thinking of, the New Living Translation calls it, or, or in Bonhoeffer's translation, running, people who are running after these things. It's anxiety out of proportion to the threat. It's appropriate to be scared of a spider in the middle of the Brazilian rainforest. It's not in the UK. Okay, there is a distinction. Anxiety is always out of proportion. And what we're dealing with worry is we're dealing with a normal system that's got decalibrated. It's got out of control. So I'm not trying to heal you of worry because it's normal. It's just out of proportion to the threat in this particular case. But there are times when worry is exactly the right response. So what I want to do next is tell you a bit about why we worry. Because I think worry is something which is understandable. You can do the sort of stew, turn, stress, uh, kind of thing. But actually, what I want us to do, first of all, is to stand back and see worry for what it is. It is something which is inherently understandable. And I'm going to take the example of money on the next slide, because that's something that you've been thinking about last week. So, I mean, is anyone here a billionaire? No one. No one. Okay, well, if you are, get your money in before the 5th of April or whenever that was. But... (laughs) If, if no one is a billionaire, you know, there's an old joke, isn't there? What's the difference between worry and panic? Answer I find out on the last Thursday of each month. Okay, so there is that sort of, and we've all had near misses perhaps about money, you know, that we're sitting there and the paycheck comes through and you know that there's just not enough in the bank account for the outgoings that you've got over the next week or two. So um, some people might have had more significant near misses with money. They might have been seriously in debt or, or maybe even bankrupt, homeless, etc. So, so near misses about money. Most of us have had that. And there's also some common themes. Money is a common theme. Um, I was talking earlier about spiders and heights. Anybody scared of curtains? No. Well, I mean, why not? No, they're scary. They sort of hang down and go in the Dracula movies, don't they? But no, no one is scared of curtains that I've met. Spiders, yes. Heights, those things seem to be wired into our brains. No one's scared of curtains yet. And in the same way, there's certain themes that are common for worries. So, so money is one of them. Health is a big deal, either our own health or the health of those we love. Um, relationships, whether they're going well or whether they're going badly. Faith is actually a biggie. You know, people who worry about their faith. Is my faith doing everything I should do? Am I, am I fully saved? Have I offended God? Things like that. Um, and there's also consequences to worry over time because it begins to build up. It begins to cause 
debt, maybe depression. If, if you are worrying about your money, the chances are perhaps you're not managing it in the most healthy way. So now not only are you worrying about money, but you probably also have genuine money management difficulties. So you've got a double whammy. Um, maybe someone's giving you a hard go for worrying. So not only are you worrying, you're starting to get guilty and, and feel depressed. So these things, you know, what is it Corrie Ten Boom said at the beginning? Ro- worry robs tomorrow of its joy and of so much else beside. And one of the things that psychologists and psychiatrists do when they think about a problem like worry is they begin to think about drivers and, and rules and things that stimulate worry. And I want to take you through a few of them, and they're all to do with the words that we use. And when I'm working with somebody who has a significant problem with worry, I've got my ears tuned for these words. So it'll be things like, I should be doing better for myself by now. By this point in my life, I ought to be doing one, two, three, four. You know, house, mortgage, 2.4 kids, whatever it is. We, we set ourselves standards. Um, I ought to be providing for my family, which is a very great thing to want. But if it's an ought, what happens when the wheels come off and you can't provide for your family? Answer, that ought, that rule, comes back and bites you on the bottom and begins to stimulate worry and depression and a whole bunch of other things. I always should have some cash set aside. Well, yes, it would be good to have some cash set aside. We'd all encourage people to have an element of savings. But to always have that rule, well, what, I mean, I've been times in my life where I have not had anything in the bank. You know, I'd like to have cash set aside, but it's a rule that can come back and bite you. Or other ones like if-thens. This is a biggie. If I have money, then I will have friends. And you can see that the worry about friends masks a deeper insecurity. If I don't have friends, then I'm worthless, or whatever it is down here. If I have success, if I have a job, etc., masks the sort of inner insecurities. And again, it's great when you've got friends, when you've got a job. But actually, ultimately, what can happen is it gets taken away and the underneath thing gets exposed. And then lastly, there's what we call golden worry rules. And these are worries about worry, feelings about feelings, thoughts about thoughts. They're things that actually are overly positive beliefs about worry. Most people, I think, would say, I probably don't want to worry. I ought not to worry too much. And most people would agree that that's their position on it. But why do we keep on worrying? Answer, because somewhere in our head, we think it's a good idea. So we believe things like, well, worrying helped me last time. Worry motivates me. Worry can stop things going wrong. Worry protects me from difficult emotions when do, things do go wrong because at least I worried about it and I did everything I could. Worrying shows I care. Again, sometimes true, but there are reasons why we continue to worry. Now, at this point, I'm going to do a little bit of audience participation. I need a volunteer who is fairly young and fit. Not you're going to get to jump up here, but I need someone who can run a little bit. So can I have a volunteer who's going to be young and fit and run? If not, I'll pick someone who looks fit. Sap Sammy. Well, there we go. There we go. Come on, Sammy. You can, you, you can do a bit. Well, I, what I want you to do is um, come, and, yeah, come and stand up here. Come and stand. I trust you to, to run around and not kick. This is, isn't that a great drum kit? I want one of those largely so when my kids learn, I can turn it off and put the headphones in. So, Sammy, I'm going to need a bit, little bit of running in a little bit, but um, just watch out for all the stuff up here. He's employed. He can't sue us. That's fine. <laughs> Let's put the next slide up, shall we? Now then, who's this first chap who's going to appear? Press the next one there. 
Who's that? Our friend Mr. Spock, isn't it? Uh, This is the new Spock. My wife tells me he takes a better picture. Um, This is the new Spock, and I think this is where we'd all like to be. It's logical, Captain. So so when Sammy gets across this side of the stage, what I want this this side of the audience to do is shout out, it's logical, Captain, okay? And then when Sammy gets across here, let's put the next one up. This is Clive Dunn from Dad's Army. And what does he say? This side of the audience are going to say, don't panic. There's a few other things you can say from him, but we'll leave it with don't panic for the moment, okay? So, so what, when, if you're someone who is worrying, you're stuck in this cycle because you know that what you ought to do is spending a whole bunch of time over here and... Brilliant, that's great. Okay, Sammy, come and run over here. So you try to be logical, but the problem is... Good. And that side, it's logical, Captain. We're just going to stop and come this way. The problem is, in this middle ground, you can't be logical about everything. Spot would have got the Enterprise blown up several times because his logic leads him to make bad decisions. And you can't... People who do worry know that worry comes out. Worry keeps coming. It keeps coming through. So you try really hard not to worry. You try to be logical, but it doesn't work because you've got all these positive beliefs about worry, worrying help. Last time, I should have these various different things. So you begin to worry, you begin to think, but the more you begin to think and panic across here, what happens when we get over here? Don't panic. Okay. And the answer is... The more you worry, the more you find yourselves in situations where you start thinking, well, goodness me, now I'm really thinking about it. And you get all kinds of worst-case scenarios. You think, well, maybe I have got cancer. Is that a lump that I can feel there? Ah, this. And you start, and you get over here, and it's really unpleasant. So you go over here, and you run back over there again. And over there, you... Good. But you can't do it, because that's completely impossible to be logical the whole time. So you come back over here... Don't panic. And that's really unpleasant, so you come back over here. Right. I think we'll give him a break there, shall we? Thanks very much. And that's what happens with worry, is that there's this cycle, this pendulum that just goes to and fro. And it's got us in our claws. You know, we try not to try to be logical. And then the more we try that, we end up panicking, come back to the middle. And um, Sammy, you're fairly young and fit. But if I'd had you doing that for a half an hour, it would have been hard work to keep that pendulum going. And I think one of the problems about worry, and this is another golden worry rule, is that actually to worry is hard work. And it feels like you're doing something. Because you're trying really hard to be sensible. And then you try really hard not to panic too much. And you think you're solving your problems. But in actual fact, you're not. So let's have a look back to Jesus. Come back to our passage. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to have a look at the last couple of verses on the next slide. And this is just a sort of general sort of thing about reading the Bible. I was saying why the beginning bit of the passage we'll be looking at might be difficult for certain people groups. And if you're ever faced with a difficult passage, if you can't sort of tackle it head on, a really good tactic, if you can't get in the front door, is to try and get in the back door. So we're going to go to the far end of the passage and have a look at the very last verse, and then we're going to start working our way backwards through the passage, and that's going to give us our answers as to what we're going to do with worry. So the very last verse there says this, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Or as the NIV says, today has got enough troubles of its own. And again, we just learn. And this is one of the things I love about Jesus is that, I mean, I 
come at this as someone who's a Christian, but also someone who's mental health trained. And Jesus just hits on here one of the most important psychological principles when you're dealing with problematic worry is that there are two types of worry. One for today, one for tomorrow. And Jesus worked it all out 2,000 years ago because he's the son of God, hey? All right, so, (laughs) but there's, there's worry for today and worry for tomorrow. And we've got to learn to sort of separate those two things out. And when we do that, we begin to get some answers. So let's just start the next one there. What we're saying is we're saying we're going to stand back from worry because it's a self-maintaining pendulum. We're going to stand back and we're going to say, right, I see what worry is. I see why it draws me into this cycle of trying not to worry and trying not to panic. And then I want to stand back and I want to label the worries I've got in my life as either things that are solvable and can be dealt with today or in the very near future, and things that are not solvable and exist at some point tomorrow and then on after. And a key thing to look for is what ifs. What if that's going to happen? What if the other happened? So we'll stick with our money example. If you want a solvable thing to do with money, one thing you might do is, oh, I haven't gone too far. Go, go back one. Go back one slide, can we? Never mind if we can't. Don't worry about that. If you've got a problem with money, one thing you might want to do is go and talk to someone about your money. So you can either go and talk to a loan shark, which is an okay thing to do, or you can actually sort of go and talk to someone who's slightly more reputable, like a financial advisor or Christians Against Poverty, and you can put into practice what they suggest. Now, you can choose not to, but ultimately, you've got a problem. They can say, right, well, the problem is you've got all your money in one pot, and it's going in and going out. You don't know how much money you've got, so we've got a method for you to manage your money. And you do it, and the result is that your money problems are solved. Christians Against Poverty promise to get you out of debt in three years. They 100% promise they can do that. And they will either help you pay your money back or they'll take you through bankruptcy so that you can have a fresh start. Okay? They've got an answer to money problems. And that's a good example of a solvable problem. But a different problem might be if you go on to put all these what-ifs into the situation. What-ifs. What if next month I won't make it like I just managed to do it this month? What if I get ill and lose my job? What if my landlord puts up the rent without warning? Now, when you go and see your financial person, you might want to build in a little bit of a buffer into your finance plan. But you're never going to be able to answer those kinds of questions about your money because they are tomorrow and beyond. They may never happen. And you kind of know that. But it's those sort of what ifs that deal us onto these worries about tomorrow that Jesus wants us to have a look at. So... Quickly, we'll just deal with the solvable ones because they're fairly easy to actually deal with. They do require you to stand back and label, first of all, but they are solvable. And then we'll spend the rest of the talk looking at unsolvable, floating worry problems. And this is a great little book called How to Fix Almost Anything. It's written by a friend of mine called Chris Williams, who's a professor of psychiatry in Glasgow. And it's just seven simple steps to problem solving. It says the first thing is just to define the problem as clearly as you can. As clearly as you can define it to say, which is what the the issue here is that for the last six months, my money's been out of kilter and it's it's really not working. And actually, what I need to do is I need a system. That is my problem. I don't have a system. You then brainstorm some solutions to your money problem. I could go and see a loan shark. I could do nothing about it. I could go to Christians Against Poverty. I could go to Citizens Advice Bureau. I can go to the benefit shop, etc., whatever it is. A whole bunch of different things you could do. You look at some pros and cons of the various different things. Don't go to a loan shark. Bad idea, okay? But the last three, Christians Against Poverty, um, Citizens Advice Bureau, they're all good places to go. And then what you need to do is you need to, at the end of the day, 
pick one. So let's say Christians Against Poverty, you pick one. And you go and see them and you begin to sort of think, well, what are the barriers to me seeing them? I could maybe, I don't know where the cap office is, I don't know what the phone number is, I haven't got the internet, I can't look it up. So you get a friend to help you and then you have to go and do it. And the key thing in dealing with solvable worry is to do something. Otherwise, you know, I mean, the problem is you're in the pendulum and you think you're doing something because you're running up and down the whole time. It feels like you're doing something about the problem. But actually, doing something with this kind of structure will actually help you make a difference. You do it, you put your money management plan in place, and then you reflect on what happened and go, wow, that is a huge weight off my shoulders. And you've dealt with solvable worry. Another example is... um, a lady called Margot had been worrying for a while about what car insurance to buy. It was all in an envelope on the dresser and it stared at her every time she went into the bedroom. One day she decided to try a problem-solving approach and she did an online brainstorm, a Google search, and noted down the first five suggestions with compare the meerkat or something. She listed the costs and main features of each policy. She picked one. She decided whether to pay up front or installments. And she asked her dad for advice on that because she wasn't sure. And then she bought the policy. She actually did something. It arrived two days later. And the whole process took half an hour. And she felt a heck of a lot better. It's a clear example of someone using problem-solving therapy to work through a simple seven-step process to work through their problems. And this probably is a good point to, to plug Mind and Soul, just on the next slide. Um, Mind and Soul is a national organization that does a whole bunch of teaching and training around Christianity and mental health issues. And we've got quite a big website. Um, it's got a whole lot of things like articles, blogs, audio, video, events, etc. But what I've done is I've done a special article for you guys, and it went live at one minute past midnight this morning, all on the seven steps of problem solving. So you can go and have a look at that, www.minusol.info. And down the bottom of it is a link to buy Chris Williams' book on how to fix almost everything. It only costs about a quid. It's a pamphlet, really. One, one quid to fix almost everything. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah? I'd spend that. I got one free, actually. He gave it to me. But it's worth a quid. And if you come and see me, I haven't got it in my bag, but I'll post you mine, okay? So, so this sounds really good, doesn't it? Okay, there is an answer to worry. We see worry for what it is, this thing that seems like a good idea. It's got its teeth into us. But I think we probably will know it's not quite as simple as that. What about worries that exist at some point in the future? What about worries that are tomorrow and beyond? Put the next slide up there. Just What about things that we're tempted to get into this swinging pendulum about? And we'll call those floating worries. So we've got solvable worries about today and floating worries about sort of tomorrow or thereon. What do we do about them? What if there is no solution? What if there isn't a definable problem? It's just a sort of what if. What if there is no certainty? And a lot of things in life are uncertain. Certain personality types like things to be certain. But fundamentally, life is uncertain in many of its different aspects. Will my family always be safe? Don't know. Will I always be healthy? Will I get cancer? I I don't know. Have I offended God? Some people really struggle with that one. And although you may say to them, no, you haven't, and you're a Christian, and you're forgiven anyway, they still really struggle with that kind of question. Am I doing the right thing with my life at the moment? I, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. I mean, it seems okay, but I don't actually know the answer to that. There isn't any certainty in that. Should I have done something different in the past? I don't know. 
There are uncertainties in this. And I think the problem is that the pendulum is about seeking certainty. It's about trying to seek certainty through being Mr. Spock. And that doesn't work. So we go over here and we end up being Clive Dunn and we start to panic because we just thought of too much stuff and now our brains are going to go pop. And that doesn't work, so we try and do this again. The pendulum's about seeking certainty because the middle ground is about uncertainty. The middle ground of the pendulum is about uncertainty. And most people swing past it who worry because they've never actually stopped in the middle and said, I'm prepared to tolerate uncertainty. Worry is about avoiding uncertainty and doing anything but. And it's a self-perpetuating cycle. But learning how to be uncertain is really, really, really important. And I'm going to teach you that today. The other thing, of course, is that Christians can make it worse. So you put Jesus into the mix. One thing we've done in Minus Hollows, we've written a book on worry. Went to the publishers last week. It's not going to come out until the autumn, so I haven't got any today. But we'll get an email out or something at some point in the future. And in the book, we've devoted an entire chapter to Christianity and worry. Because it's such an important thing. Because Christians make such a hash of this. Tom, at the beginning, spent £1,000 a week on a professional worrier. Christians are equally good about making a complete pig's ear of worry. Extract from the church newsletter. Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. Um, You know, actually, is rather more true to the bone than perhaps we'd like. It is called the Christian faith, not the Christian obvious. And particularly in churches where there's an emphasis on being sure of your faith, having assurance... Praying for salvation. Actually, it is an uncertain thing. We do not know until we get to heaven. And actually, it's a relationship with God. And relationships are uncertain things. So sometimes the way in which we approach certainty in churches can actually make it worse. And if we cut people off and stop them from asking questions. And Peter was saying a couple of weeks ago, he said, you know, believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts. But you're always going to continue having doubts. What you need to do is gently doubt them. Not cut them off, not suppress them, because they just come back all the stronger. And if you do cut them off, not only do you have worry, you have guilt for thinking I'm a useless Christian. You can get depressed, and the whole situation gets quite a lot worse. And it's not something that we can just snap out of. And my guess is that there's probably some people here today in the church who either struggle with significant worry or struggle with significant depression. For whom perhaps they're not too willing to be open about those kinds of questions or emotions or doubts because they're slightly worried about the response they might get. And I hope that this church is is ahead of that game. And I think that's one of the reasons for doing this Freedom Series and covering topics like worry today. But in some churches who are just so black and white on it, it's all about certainty, nothing about uncertainty. You can get situations like this. Imagine a faithful and precious member of this church who struggled with problematic worry for years. And they chatted to someone after the service, you know, Mrs. Do-Good, who just wants to sort the problem out just there. And then she says, oh, have you tried praying about it? She goes, yes, I've been a Christian for 20 years. Um, Oh, prayer worked for me. Well, blessings to you, sister, but it's not working for me at the moment like this. Um, The Bible tells us to pray. I said, I know, like this, would you like me to pray for you? It's like, ah, like this. And you want to strangle them. And if I can make one plea, perhaps the plea is for us to stop having quick fixes for emotional or mental health problems in the church. Jesus does have answers, and that's why mind and soul exists. But they're not quick answers, necessarily. 
And I think on that sort of note, it's time for me to shut up for a little bit, and we're going to play you a rather nice little video. So I'd like you to enjoy this one. It's a famous song. Guys, go for it. and a round of applause. <laughs> now, that was a silly film. But there's a serious... And the full thing's four minutes long. If you want to go on the internet or on iTunes, you can watch it. The serious thing, actually, is that that's really bad advice. It's great advice if you've got a lilt in your hand and the beach and that kind of stuff. But don't worry, be happy is not actually advice to deal with problematic worry. What we actually need to do is stand back, label... We need to act where there is actions to be taken. And the last thing we need to do is we need to learn how to pray. And this is where we have to come back again and learn from Jesus. And we're just going to carry on going back in our Bibles. So let's have a little look at verse 33 this time. We have verse 34. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. And I think one of the things we need to try and do is we do need to pray. We don't like to pray like well-meaning Winifred in a quick fix kind of prayer. But we do need to learn how to pray at this time. And it's very important that we pray for the right thing. And again, Jesus just gives us a really, really simple answer. And I love it when you read the Bible again. And hey, he was the son of God. But it's just a very simple answer. What do you pray for? Answer, well, you seek first the kingdom of God. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? And that means seeking him, seeking his salvation. And the second thing is, and all these things, by assume which he means the food and the drinks and the clothing and the running and the peace and all that kind of stuff we seek, will come later. But one of the problems when we pray about worry is we pray for peace. Or 
We pray for food or clothing or something. And we totally understand why people are praying for those things. But the Gentiles seek those things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. And actually what Jesus says is something far more profound and different. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will come anyway. Don't seek them first because they come second. If you seek them second, you'll only get them temporarily. And you won't get the first thing. What is it Jesus said to Mary and Martha? Martha, Martha, you are troubled and worried about many things. But Jesus has chosen what is better. So when we pray in situations of chronic and ongoing worry, we don't pray for solutions. Because that's not the answer. These are not problems that have solutions anyway. Will you always be healthy? I don't know. Does God know? Maybe. But he's unlikely to tell you every day of your life. We need to pray for God to seek him first, to seek his kingdom, to seek his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you as well. And when we think about seeking, we need to remember some stuff about seeking, which you've covered actually in in, in previous weeks, but I'm just going to recap them now. The first is from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are really challenging. And the reason the Beatitudes are challenging is that they seem unpleasant. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, yes, Lord, give me more of that. You know... They seem unpleasant, but actually, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are not things that we should pray away because God's got a blessing for us in them. Blessed are the poor in spirit for what? For they will receive the kingdom. Oh, isn't that what we were told to seek first, the kingdom? So blessed are the poor in spirit. If you want to understand seeking, you need to understand poor in spirit. If you want to understand seeking, you need to understand hunger and thirsting for righteousness. If I drink this, I'm not thirsty anymore. Actually, I am because it's hot up here and I've been talking too much today. But the aim is not to quench the thirst. The aim is to be thirsty. The aim is to have hunger. It's to search. We're not about the solution. It's the process, the journey, all of these things, to hunger and to thirst for God. I remember um, talking to someone at the end of a church service once and and they said to me, oh, I can't be friends with so-and-so. They're such a warrior. And I felt like smacking them because I felt like saying, pity you. Pity you when life throws you a lemon, when life throws you something that you can't handle and actually you're going to start worrying and you might even get depressed, might have to take medication, etc. Don't speak into their life because you don't know what's going on. And actually, I can guarantee you that person probably seeks and knows more of God and knows more of his kingdom and more of his righteousness than you who think you haven't got any problems and you've found everything already. didn't actually say that. I, I shut my mouth and walked away. But that's what I wanted to say in that situation. And following on from that, seeking is not the same thing as finding. Matthew 7 verse 7 says, seek and you will find. But that's Matthew 7. Comes after Matthew 6. Seek and you will find. You know, this is the visible Christian community, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. But we're in Matthew 6. He's got some work to do on our internal Christian world, our wallets, our prayer, our mind. And actually, when a couple of weeks ago, Peter broke the sequence and he taught on Matthew 7. And what he actually said was, he said, the answer... To seeking and finding actually is to realize that sometimes God answers no. Doesn't always give you what you pray for. Dear Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz? I can't sing as well as him. But he said the answer to that is invariably no. And when we understand that God answers no, then we understand staying at the seeking stage and not necessarily finding perhaps in the way that we thought we were going to find. And of course, the last thing is says that seek his kingdom and his righteousness, seek him and his salvation. It's got to be God that we're seeking. 
People come to church for a whole bunch of reasons. Maybe you come for church for, for help for your life or because you've always come to, to church and you, know, you, you want to find this peace or you want to find security or a church, a loving church community. Isn't it great? Leith is a lovely, small family church compared to the other venue. You seek all of those things. But actually, ultimately what we seek is God. John Piper, an American preacher, said, God is the gospel. Not salvation, not peace not success, not friends. Those things hopefully will follow. But God is the gospel. Seek him and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you as well. So, so what's seeking like? And I think this is where I probably differ from what a secular psychologist would advise you at this point. Secular psychologists would do all the same things. They say, stand back from worry and see it for what it is, a self-maintaining pendulum. It's good cognitive behavioral therapy that Jesus was doing. Good because he's the son of God. But it ties in with modern psychological theory. And it says, label it. Worries about tomorrow that you can solve. Sorry, today you can solve and tomorrow. A psychologist would say, act. They'll teach you problem-solving techniques. The, The book, even though Chris is a Christian, that's a secular book, How to Fix Almost Anything. But what they will say instead of pray is they will say practice mindfulness and meditation from a a secular point of view. And those things are about distancing yourself from emotion, not seeking the solutions, allowing the emotions to flow over you, being simple and childlike. In some ways, very similar to the kinds of things that I've been talking about. And that's why mindfulness and meditation are practiced by all kinds of religions around the world. Perhaps most famous in Buddhism and in new generations of cognitive behavioral therapy. But mindfulness and meditation have been in the Christian church as well. Think about things like fasting. Think about things like pilgrimages. Okay? These things have been there in the Christian tradition. But in fasting, what does it say? It says, fast from the world that you may feast on God. So the aim of the mindfulness and meditation that is there in fasting is to seek God and his rights, to enjoy him. Perhaps coming back to sort of what it means, you know, today, perhaps it means just to spend time in worship. Not after anything particular, but just enjoying God's presence. Spend time serving. Spend time just, you know, you're leaning a bit into God. Just lean one more degree. What does it feel like to trust in God? Not what can I do with that knowledge, but what does it feel like? Describe it. Is it warm? Is it cold? Do I see that feeling changing throughout the day? All of these things are are seeking God, but not the solution. I haven't got time to go into too much depth in that, but the answer is to spend time in worship. And One thing you might notice is there's a verse in this that I haven't covered so far. And that verse is verse 30. And it says, O ye of little faith. And there's a reason why I've left that verse until last. I think it's another verse that we can tend to misunderstand. Particularly if we worry. Particularly if we think as Christians we ought to snap out of it. We can think that we don't have faith. We have a second class faith and all the other Christians have got first class faith. But actually, Jesus puts it in there for a reason. He's not having a go at people in this passage. There's lots of times in the New Testament when Jesus is having a go at people, usually at the Jewish leaders or at the Romans or something like this. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not having a go at people. He's talking to his disciples. He's taken them up a hill. Other people are listening, yes, but he's talking to his core disciples. And gently, 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 Jesus says to them, ye of little faith. And the reason why he says that, he goes on to say, so seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Seek these things. See your faith grow. 
See your faith begin to increase. And the answer to worry is, to a certain extent, to have more faith. But Jesus is not condemning us by saying, ye of little faith. What he's doing is he's pointing out an accuracy, which is that when you start to deal with worry, we do have little faith, perhaps. But as we deal with it, as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, we begin to have more faith. And if you're someone who's dismissive of worry, make sure you're not a person who has no faith at all. And actually learn from the journey, learn from the struggle. So what we've been saying is to stand back, to stand back from worry and see the pendulum, to label. Is it a tomorrow, a today problem or is it a tomorrow problem? We're also talking about acting, about solving the problems that can be solved today. But the problems that can't be solved, we need to pray about them. But we're not going to pray about them in a Lord give me peace manner. We're going to pray about them in a I want to seek God. I want to be poor in spirit. I want to hunger and thirst after righteousness. I want to journey towards him. I want to grow in my faith. And we seek God first. And all of these other things, the clothing, the, the, the food, the peace, the relationships, will, will follow on later from those things. And that's more or less all I want to say about worry. Do read the book when it comes out. Or listen to this. I think it probably would be important if you do struggle with worry to listen to this message later because I've covered quite a few things and it is something that needs to be processed, worked through, listen to it with a friend, etc. Those kinds of things.